0: This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free online resource for health professionals education. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor at Harvard Medical School. I'm very pleased to have with us today Dr. Darren Orbach, Dr. Orbeck is the Chief of Neurointerventional Radiology and the co-director of the Cerebrovascular Surgery and Intervention Center at Boston Children's Hospital. He is also the Sage Skirmahorn Chair in Image Guided Therapy at Boston Children's Hospital and associate professor of radiology at Harvard Medical School. Darren, uh, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning. It's really great to be here. over more than a decade or almost two decades of working with you, I know the challenges that you undertake uh, really every day in uh, treating some very complex, fragile cerebrovascular malformations in the brain and nervous system of children. And I wonder if we could begin by: could you explain to us, you know, what are the challenges as that a pediatric neurointerventionalist such as you faces? Uh, what are the things that you know you worry about? Uh... So we have patients who
1: present uh, with a very wide range of severity, and sometimes they've had a major event already that's life-threatening, but other times they have incidentally discovered findings or subtle uh, findings on exam that actually portend a potentially catastrophic outcome. And so I would say one of the challenges is to, um, Be working in a realm where the stakes are extremely high and and there's the potential for catastrophe sometimes from the natural history sometimes from the intervention. Uh, One of the major challenges too is trying to adopt adult techniques essentially to a very different realm both in terms of the Uh, conditions that we treat, and also in terms of the patients and the technical challenges around vessel size, neurological development, vessel fragility, and things like that, using tools that are really not developed for that purpose.
0: Well, I wonder if we could move on. Um, I I know that in particular, um, you've uh, really treated a number of children with vein of Galen malformations, and I suspect that's where you would like to go today.
1: Uh, It is. uh, Vein of Galen malformation represents probably the very uh, epitome of the challenge that I was talking about in terms of the complexity of the condition, the fact that it affects children really from fetal life on uh, through to adulthood. And the range of severity is extreme from life-threatening heart failure, pretty much at birth, uh, to kids who can develop completely intact and with great neurologic outcomes and full lifespans. And it's a very recent area in which we've been able to intervene in a positive way. It had been a, a terrible diagnosis until fairly recently as I'll discuss in a few minutes. Um, but there really are major gaps in our ability to provide care for a lot of kids with vein of galen malformation. And that's what I wanted to talk about, really a new a clinical trial that's going in an entirely new direction to try to intervene in fetal life before a lot of the uh, very serious clinical
0: manifestations are felt. Well, um, Dr. Orbach, could you remind us, what what should we remember about the embryology and anatomy of a vein of galen malformation?
1: Absolutely, let me jump right into that. Uh, I wanted to illustrate that a lot of the severe manifestations of vein of galen malformation have been known for a long time now, uh, for almost half a century. Um, So heart failure and large cardiac uh, silhouette, as you can see here, ventriculomegaly, as you can see on this very old um, radiograph, Uh, and macrocephaly enlargement of the uh, facial and scalp veins and developmental abnormalities. These have been known for a long time. The embryology of vein of galen malformation is very interesting. So just to very quickly recapitulate cerebrovascular development, we start out with uh, before the neural tube is closed, the uh, neural tissue is just floating in the amniotic fluid, and nutrition is via diffusion, and a network of endothelial-like cells form on the surface of the neural tube let me just mention that these uh, next few figures will be from this beautiful review paper by Charles Ribot. As the neural tube closes, it's surrounded by uh, this more and more dense network of endothelial cells that forms a structure called the Meninx primitiva. And that serves to start to concentrate oxygen close to the surface of the neural tube. And almost immediately after closure, two invaginations form into the center of the neural tube and they carry little bits of that Meninx primitiva inside the interior of the neural tube. This will become the ventricular space and the Meninx primitiva is what will become the choroid plexus. So the early cerebrovascular circulation is really centered around the choroid plexus and in fact it's called the choroidal phase of cerebrovascular development. And as the first major vessels form, they're all organized around the choroid plexus. So on this view, you can see the choroid plexus as this twirl over here, and these are the very early arter- choroidal arteries and veins. And the center point is this large, middle uh, median prosencephalic vein of Markowski, which runs from the from the choroid plexus backwards and drains essentially the early cerebrovascular circulation back. And what should happen in typical development is that this is the prosencephalic vein here, the anterior piece of it should become plexiform and essentially involute and go away. And the back end of it is what should become the true vein of Galen. So the vein of Galen develops as the deep drainage pathway, common drainage pathway of the developing brain. However, in patients with a vein of Galen malformation, this process never happens. And the reason for that is that early arteriovenous communication is formed between that prosencephalic vein and those early choroidal arteries, and that just persists. And so here we're looking now at a sagittal view, so here's the front and here's the back, and this is now the prosencephalic vein which starts to get very bulbous as there's more and more flow into it from these arterial feeders that are coming in. The arteries that are feeding the prosencephalic vein are the very first arteries that form in the brain, And essentially, it takes over the brain circulation and doesn't allow the normal vein of Galen uh, to develop at all. And that's what developed into the vein of Galen malformation.
0: Well, Dr. Orbach, that's a very clear explanation of the embryology of the vein of Galen malformation. Can you take us through the clinical presentation of this malformation? Yes, absolutely.
1: The the most severe manifestations are often cardiac, and they usually are manifest right after birth, not before birth. We'll discuss that again in in a few minutes. Um, But essentially, because of the very fast flow and high volume flow through the malformation in the brain, essentially, it puts the newborn into a state of high output heart failure, which is usually manifest, especially with right ventricular Um, hypertension, pulmonary hypertension, and eventually left-sided cardiac failure as well. And the pathophysiology of that has really become uh, much better understood in the last few years. Here's an example of a paper showing some of the classic findings that we see. So you certainly get ventricular enlargement on on ultrasound. Uh, You can see dilatation of the superior vena cava, which is bringing all of that blood back from the brain into the heart compared to the inferior vena cava, which is normal caliber over here. You get actual reversal of flow in the descending aorta because there's so much sump effect pushing blood up to the head that you actually reverse the direction of flow up the aorta, which itself can cause ischemia to the abdominal organs as well. That's, That's the most severe initial manifestation, but... Coupled with that are other things, such as ventriculomegaly and hydrocephalus. This is an interesting uh, case of a patient of ours, actually, who had their vein of galen malformation treated, and it's it's essentially completely thrombosed with no more flow, and yet you can see massive dilatation of the ventricles here in the face of a treated vein of galen malformation. Typically, with treatment of the malformation, the ventriculomegaly dissipates, but this can become an issue to deal with. And finally, one of the most dreaded consequences is this, which uh, many people call melting brain syndrome. And the etiology of this is thought to be some combination of arterial steel and high venous pressures in the brain. And what essentially happens is you start to accrue parenchymal injuries to the brain that become uh, accelerated and very diffuse. And this is a very dramatic example we had a few years back. This was a baby born in Florida who was med-flighted to us for treatment. This was the local MRI scan that was done on day one one after birth. And you can already see some subtle uh, parenchymal injuries in the brain, but most of the hemispheres are still intact at this point. And then by the time they were med-flighted to us, before we started treatment, we decided to check with another MRI before undergoing treatment. And you can see that by nine days of age, basically both hemispheres have completely become gliotic. There's almost no normal parenchyma here. And you can see the high signal of the fluid intensity on the T2-weighted scans in both hemispheres. So this is an example of that extreme melting brain syndrome. The goal of vein of galen malformation intervention, of course, is to address the heart failure, prevent the ventricular enlargement, and intervene before
0: this kind of parenchymal brain injury can happen. Well, Darren, I, I even in our brief interview so far, I must say this is a, a far more dramatic presentation uh, or a range of presentations than I realized, uh, but how has the treatment approach evolved over this time?
1: The, the treatment has really undergone a sea change, I would say, starting in the early 1990s, and let me let me go over that briefly. This is a, a review paper that was published in 1987 that was at the very tail end of the open surgical era of treatment of vein of Galen malformation, and uh, it's an important paper, and it's sort of encapsulates the problem with the open surgical approach. You can see that the diagnosis was a truly terrible diagnosis at that point with over half of the patients diagnosed dying, uh, even a very high mortality rate for the surgically treated cases. And the, the worst part is that the neonatal patients who remain the most difficult to treat had a mortality rate of over 90%. So really there was just not effective treatment for the patients back then. And what happened in the late 1990s, in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, was the development of endovascular approaches to this condition, which have really revolutionized the kind of care we offer. That was pioneered by Pierre Lajonias and his colleagues in Paris. And this was a paper he uh, published before his unfortunate death, actually, describing his cohort of hundreds of patients. And the numbers are really significantly better than they were with surgical treatment. So you have a very high Uh, proportion of survivors and a very high proportion of patients who are neurologically normal on follow-up. Here you can see 74%. And let's just go over an example to show what the current state of the art treatment is. So this is an actual patient we had several years back. Often, and most times, I would say the diagnosis is made in utero on routine fetal ultrasound. You can see the large the large centrally located vascular structure with very high Doppler signal and fetal ultrasound. That leads to a fetal MRI scan. And what we're looking for on the fetal MRI scan is that the brain parenchyma is still intact. In rare cases, the brain parenchyma is already injured in utero. And those patients, unfortunately, we really do not have uh, the ability to offer treatment to them. But you see all of the findings uh, that are characteristic here in vein of galen malformation, the brain parenchyma is intact. Here is the large cephalic vein that I described in in talking about the embryology. And the baby uh, is typically admitted to the NICU right after birth for observation. And as I'll discuss in a few minutes, the cohort basically bifurcates into two groups. There is a severely affected group that develops overwhelming heart failure at birth and that requires emergent embolizations. That's one group. The other group are the babies who do well in the NICU and who are discharged, and we follow them electively as outpatients for the first few months of life, and we typically bring them back at age five or six months for elective embolization. So they do not develop the cardiac failure, but they're still at risk for the brain manifestations, and that's the goal of the embolization. Incidentally, those are the patients you will be seeing in the medical surgical ICU, and the patients who are seen in the NICU and treated in the NICU are the more severe cohort. So this is that same patient I was just showing, the fetal ultrasound, the fetal MRI scan. This is now the MRI right after birth, and we can see more detail of the brain parenchyma here again is the prosencephalic vein. You can actually make out the network of large arterial feeders coming up here, these flow voids heading right up to the malformation, and you can see that this one has the structure of a single-hole fistula with a large vein and the arterial inflow coming in right here. This child did very well for the first few months of life, and so we brought him back at age five months, and this is now an angiographic uh, set of images. This is a frontal view and a lateral view, both of a left vertebral artery injection. You can see the arterial blood flowing up rapidly, and rather than filling the posterior fossa, it's flowing right into the single hole fistula, straight into the varic. So there's essentially a hole in the vein right here with this large arterial pipe just flowing right in on frontal and lateral views. And the treatment here was essentially to first slow the flow with a microcatheter at the point of arteriovenous communication with a very small nest of coils. And once that was in place, that allowed us to use a liquid glue that was injected to definitively close off that arteriovenous connection. And once that's done, you can see with the subsequent injection of contrast, there's no more filling of the varics because that entry point has been closed. Now you beautifully see all the normal arterial branches of the PCA and the posterior fossa back here. Here's a nice capillary blush of the brain tissue. So you'll note that the the varics itself has not been treated at all. It was the arteriovenous communication that was closed off. And here's the same child. So this is the fetal MRI scan the MRI scan at day day five after birth, and then here's the subsequent follow-up scans of two years. And even though the varix was never treated, you can see it has completely involuted because there's no more flow through it and it just shrinks away and goes away. Here's the MRI scan of the brain, completely intact child who's developing normally. He's now, I think, 12 years old.
0: Darren, could I ask? um... Yes. You know, as it is often the case in the cath lab, um, you know, they will do a, a balloon occlusion of some vessel to temporarily assess whether the flow dynamics uh, it, that are now created are still favorable. Um, I, I know this is a knee bones connected to the thigh bone question for wow. a neuro <laughs> interventionalist, but you just close it or do you test close it to make sure that it's not creating tributaries that you didn't intend? It's
1: actually a great question. For many conditions that we treat, we actually do balloon test occlusions, especially for some complex aneurysms. Uh, For vein of galen malformation, because of that unique embryology that I discussed, when we can point to particular characteristic vessels feeding it, specifically those choroidal vessels that I mentioned, then we know and if you position the microcatheter at the point of arteriovenous communication and there are no branches to the peel, branches to the brain parenchyma, then you can confidently close that vessel um, if, again, you have to be close to the arteriovenous junction. I will say that there are cases that I see, and we're, we're often referred unfortunate cases, where the point of occlusion is too proximal, where there still are parenchymal branches coming off to the brain. And those kids do end up with ischemic injuries and sometimes major strokes because of that. But if you are choosing appropriate branches based on the embryology, it is safe to occlude. And there really is no mechanism for doing a balloon test occlusion in this setting in a young infant. I will mention that there are some feeding branches that really cannot be safely closed. So in some kids, the dominant feeders are actually perforating arteries to the thalamus that come off the top of the basilar artery. And rather than seeing a large pipe, an arterial pipe, like I just showed on the previous case, it's more of a fine mesh, uh, almost looks like a brain AVM of nidal vessels that are going right through the thalamus to the malformation. Those are very high risk to treat. If you need to and the child is declining, then you sort of take on the risk, but you have to get your microcatheter very far all the way through the thalamus before you inject the glue. It's extremely challenging and extremely high risk. So in many kids, we leave those alone as long as they're not in heart failure and as long as they're developing neurologically. The goal here is actually not to get a perfect set of images at the end and close the malformation definitively but to allow the child to develop normally uh, without heart failure and and
0: preserving the brain. How long on average does it take you to get the microcatheter to the uh, necessary uh, point of, of occlusion?
1: Yeah, so that is one of the extreme technical challenges that we have in the neurointerventional world, especially for the cases where we're working in neonates where the arterial access Uh, is so limited by size, and the contrast dose we can give is so limited by the patient weight. So um, it's definitely a huge undertaking to do these cases uh, in the newborns. In fact, we ask the neonatal um, physicians to place an umbilical artery line immediately at birth in every baby with a vein of galen malformation, and then I will typically use that umbilical artery line with a wire in it that I then take up to the vasculature in the neck as my guide catheter and I'll put a microcatheter through that. Some of the babies have extremely tortuous vessels, they're friable, it's, it's very technically challenging. So it can, it can take uh, many hours to get access. And the, the technical challenge of trying to close extremely rapid high volume flow in a controlled way using these very small catheters is, is really a, a major challenge, I will say. So this is another case I just wanted to show that has a very different morphology. The baby presented very similarly. So uh, we knew about this case in utero. The baby was admitted to the NICU, was followed, was discharged from the NICU and did well and came back electively at, at, again at five months of age. And you'll notice here, there is not one dominant arterial inflow. Rather, it's a network of fine vessels feeding into the wall of the prosencephalic varics. Here on this lateral view, you can see that it, the front wall, the anterior wall of the varix, is essentially studded with little holes where this network is feeding in. These, thankfully, are not those transthalamic perforators that I was talking to you about. These are safe to treat. So embryologically, these are the same vessels that I showed you in the previous case, but the morphology is different. It's a network rather than a large single-hole fistula. And so for this, a device like a coil is not appropriate, and you have to use a pure liquid agent. And here you can see the microcatheter showing purely network going into the varics, and there's no parenchymal blush out here. And so this is safe to treat. And here you can see the cast of glue that's outlining that nidal vasculature on the frontal view. And here you can see it sits exactly in front of the varics over here. Again, the varics is not embolized but the nidal communication point at the arteriovenous junction is embolized with the same net result. So here's the injection after the glucast is here, no more filling of the varics and you just have normal brain tissue and the normal venous phase. And the net result at the over time is the same as well. So here's the child at four months of age, just before treatment started. You can see the large varics here with lots of little feeders coming in. And then by two and a half years of age, the varics has completely involuted again, despite the fact that it was never treated and this child is completely intact. So, the development of these embolization techniques really were a, a sea change, I would say, a revolutionary change. And we in the neurointerventional world tend to treat this as one of the great triumphs of our field, I think, with some justification. And there have been numerous case series published over the years describing the success rates. And this was a nice meta analysis that was published a few years ago that organizes the publications by decades. So the first publications you can see were in the very late 1980s, just when the techniques were developed. And I wrote in red here the fraction of all patients in these cohorts that did poorly. So either the patients died or they had very bad neurologic outcomes. And in the early days, you can see about just over half the patients did badly. By the 1990s, that went down to about a third. And I would say it it has remained at just under a third now of patients who have bad outcomes after treatment, so the great majority of treated patients do well, which is certainly great. It's certainly a dramatic improvement over where we were in the days of open surgery. What's been interesting for me, almost from a sociology of medicine perspective, is if you go outside the world of neurointerventional radiology and you talk to the obstetricians, and to the neonatal medicine docs, you will hear very different uh, description of the state of the art of vein of galen malformation. And that is because they are looking at things from the perspective of the pregnant parents. The entire neurointerventional literature reflects that cohort of patients that we choose to treat. And one of Pierre Lajonias' developments when he constructed this paradigm of endovascular treatment was a rigid set of criteria for choosing which patients to treat. And essentially, if the patients were doing very well at birth, we just watched them, as I described to you. If the patients were incredibly sick with multi-organ failure and overwhelming heart failure that really could not be controlled, those patients were actually not treated because it was felt that they could not be helped. And it was the patients in the middle who were developing heart failure that could no longer be managed medically, but they were otherwise intact. That was sort of the sweet spot for endovascular therapy. And some form of that paradigm is still operative in most places. So he developed an official score called the Bicetra score. Many hospitals still follow it rigidly. Most places use it as sort of a loose Guideline for which patients to treat, but the net result is that there's a lot of patients we end up not treating because they're deemed too sick. And if you look instead at the literature from the OB world and talk to the MFMs, you'll see that there's many, many patients who end up doing very badly and they never make it to the statistics. So there have been several reviews in the last few years looking specifically at the prenatally diagnosed cases and asking from that perspective. What is the chance that a newly diagnosed fetus will actually be born and treated and do well? And it turns out that that fetus has only about a one-third chance of survival without major neurologic impairment. That was a paper from 2012. Then five years later, another paper using two cohorts in in Europe found a similar number. Only about 37% of all the fetuses they followed actually survived infancy without significant neurologic impairment. So that was the first sort of hint that the picture was not quite as rosy as we all thought. And then I think there's been foundational work that has come out of the Great Ormond Street Hospital, where because of the nationalized healthcare system, they essentially see every single case of vein of Galen malformation in the UK. And so they have an enormous database of patients over the last few decades. And what they have found is that they have split their cohort into the two types that I mentioned to you, the type, the first is the cohort of patients who are very sick at birth? So the newborns who go into heart failure, and they asked, how does that cohort fare? And it turns out that even at this very um, this center of excellence, that's very experienced, you know, with terrific practitioners, that they have a forty percent mortality rate in that cohort, and of the survivors, half of them have severe neurocognitive compromise. So if you tally those numbers for the newborns who sort of crash because of heart failure and need urgent treatment, they only have a 30% of likelihood to survive, of survival to adulthood without significant injury. So I'm gonna call that cohort, the babies who get run into trouble in the NICU, the neonatal at risk cohort or NAR. And then the next year they published a, another paper about the other cohort that does well in the NICU and the, the kids they bring back at a few months of age for elective treatment. And of course, they have a much better survival rate of 90%, although even in that cohort, about 30% of them have a poor neurologic outcome. So I'm going to call that cohort the infantile treatment cohort, IT. So we have the NAR babies and the IT babies. And let me just show you some examples that we've seen, patients we've been referred uh, from outside institutions, just to show how aggressive the condition can be. And this is early presentation before one could even conceivably intervene to prevent this damage. So this is an MRI scan from a two week old, and you can already see that most of both hemispheres has already been become gliotic and disappeared. So just some of the frontal lobes have been preserved, the deep gray structures are preserved, but both hemispheres are already significantly injured. There is just no intervention that could have been early enough to prevent this. Here's a one-day-old MRI. This baby was just born. There are essentially no cerebral hemispheres at all here. This is all CSF. And there, again, there's no intervention one could have possibly done after birth to to prevent this. Here's another example. This is a three-day-old. The entire left hemisphere is essentially gliotic, and this is all CSF signal. So there really is a significant cohort of kids who are not being offered treatment that could possibly be effective. And if you take the perspective of the pregnant parents, the chances of a tragic outcome really still outweigh the chances of all other outcomes despite the advances we've had over the past decades by endovascular embolization.
0: Well, uh, Darren, first of all, um, I suspect I speak for colleagues around the world that being simply amazed at the work that you and your colleagues do, this seems so Delicate, um, and uh, you have our admiration for what you're taking on. But how do you advance the field from here?
1: So I think because I have shown that many newborns already develop significant neurologic injury early on, and that the cohort that needs urgent intervention in the NICU still has a relatively poor morbidity and mortality outcome I think it's important to start thinking about intervening before birth, uh, during fetal life, and let's just discuss what that might look like. So to do that appropriately, I think it's very important to identify the right cohort. And I mentioned before, there are the two cohorts that I discussed, the infantile treatment cohort or IT. Those are the kids who do well in the NICU, who are brought back for elective treatment Those patients are really not appropriate for a fetal intervention. They have a good outcome, only a 10% mortality. There are some cases of poor neurologic outcome, but the majority of them will do well. And this is where the current state-of-the-art treatment really excels, I think. The target cohort are the NAR babies, the ones who will present with overwhelming heart failure at birth, who still have a poor morbidity and mortality. And let me just mention the last cohort that is also not an appropriate target for fetal intervention. That's the severe fetal presentation. I briefly mentioned that some fetuses already have brain injury in utero, and they are also not an appropriate cohort for fetal intervention because we can't offer help to them. They're typically severely impaired um, you know, bed bound with constant seizures, and that's just not a cohort that, that we can really help. And so we want to target this NAR cohort. And the question is, is there a way to identify this cohort before birth so that we know that we're providing appropriate fetal intervention? And the answer is that there is. So we did a large analysis of our all of our neonatal day one MRI scans in these babies and systematically looked at basically every vascular parameter you can think of on the fetal on the neonatal MRI scans and we identified particular parameters that very nicely predicted which of those newborns were actually developing heart failure and which weren't and then we took those set of criteria and compared them to the fetal scans in the same babies and it turns out that we were able to identify a particular parameter that beautifully predicts how the fetus is going to present so Essentially, it turns out that the size of the varics is not important, and lots of other parameters are not important, but what matters is to find the point of greatest constriction of outflow of flow from the varics back to the systemic circulation. And the way you do that is you find the shortest measurement along this sinus uh, pathway, and then you measure the width of of that pathway at that spot. So this is sort of a proxy for the constraint point that is acting as a plug between the cerebral circulation and the systemic circulation. And it turns out that beyond a certain criteria, a certain threshold for width of this point, those babies will overwhelmingly be likely to develop heart failure and below that threshold, they will overwhelmingly not. And the prediction is very robust. So if you look at that width, uh, the width uh, of the diameter in measured in width at that point, you find that the risk of presenting as an NAR newborn goes up dramatically with the width of that measurement. So by the time you get to eight millimeters at that point, you're almost at a 90% probability of presenting in that severe presentation as a newborn with excellent confidence, 95% confidence intervals. And above that, it's a near certainty. Below that, if that width is very narrow, it's extremely unlikely that the baby will present in that way. So that really was a tool that enabled us to target the right cohort for fetal intervention. And then once we have done that, now the question is how might we intervene? And here the fetal cardiology interventions, the needle-based cardiology interventions have really been a paradigm. And as you know, we have a robust program uh, at Children's for fetal cardiology interventions. I'll just show Um, Some examples, uh, for example, to treat hypoplastic left heart syndrome, the cardiologists now do aortic uh, valve balloon dilatations for aortic stenosis. This is now showing the injection of paralytic and anesthetic into the buttock of the fetus prior to intervention. And then you can see the needle going through the sternum of the baby right into the heart, this transcardiac treatment. And you can see the wire is passed across the valve in preparation for balloon dilatation. And this has really revolutionized the care of some of our congenital cardiac patients, and this served as a paradigm for me in thinking through how we might treat vein of Galen patients. And so the idea would be to do something analogous and to use the posterior fontanelle, which is situated right above the confluence of sinuses here in the back of the brain and allows for needle access through the fontanelle. So in the same way that the MFM would be getting transternal access for the cardiologist, here we would get transcranial access, so again, through the uterus, uh, right into the posterior fontanelle, and that's the maroon line over here. Through that needle, a microcatheter would be advanced, this is all under ultrasound, into the into the varics, and then coils would be placed into the varics. The idea of coiling the varics is not to occlude it, but to slow the flow, and I mentioned to you that in our neonatal paradigm and our infant paradigm for treating vein of galen malformation, we do not directly treat the varics. Instead, we treat the arteriovenous junction. But here, the goal is different. The goal is just to slow the flow and transform those kids from the NAR cohort to the IT cohort so that they can be discharged from the NICU and treated electively and have that much better outcome that the IT patients do. We still do treat rarely the varics directly in neonatal life as well as a bailout. So for example, this was a baby from a few years back who was treated with transarterial embolization, unfortunately did not respond and continued to have overwhelming heart failure, and so we opted to go in and and embolize the varics directly. That finally broke the cardiac pathophysiology, and here you can see the varics Um, is coiled and does not involute like the other cases I showed you because it has been directly embolized. So there are coils in here, but this baby was discharged from the NICU is completely intact neurologically, and you can see the brain uh, really looks terrific. So that's the paradigm. The goal is to take the fetuses who are destined to be in the severe cohort and move them into the other cohort. Unfortunately, there is no animal model that remotely resembles Fane of Galen malformation. And so in working on this project and developing the methodology, we instead turned to our colleagues uh, in the simulation center and we asked them to develop a fetal brain um, phantom for us that was actually based on the brains of patients that we have treated. So they designed uh, a phantom using cryogel, which has ultrasound properties extremely similar to the brain with an internal cavity that had, that models the prosencephalic varics and that that sinus venous drainage pathway leading out. Again, based on two different patients that we did, this was the first generation of the model. The second generation of the model had a little bit of a skull and a posterior fontanelle. And then we went ahead and treated, and then we treated it essentially in the way that we will be treating the fetuses. So we got an MRI of the phantom, you can see for treatment planning to allow us to decide the size and type of coils that we should use. And then uh, I and my colleagues at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where, uh, where this will be taking place, uh, went ahead and embolized the phantom, and you can see the hands of the sonographer and the MFM, and the microcatheter comes through the needle into the center of the varix. And here you can see what it looks like under direct ultrasound visualization. So you can see the needle going through the plug into the sinus to enter the back of the varix, and then the microcatheter coming in. Here's the wire and the catheter coming in. You can see the resolution on ultrasound. You can even see the lumen of the catheter here. And then here is the first coil going in. You can see the acoustic shadowing as the coil starts to happen, starts to be deployed. And continuing on, you can see progressive embolization with an increasingly dense shadow. But even at the very end, you continue to see the loops of coil unfurling here. And so we went ahead and did this for several phantoms. And then we checked our work, as as, uh, we will do for the fetuses. In this case, I got a radiograph just out of curiosity to verify right away that the coils were actually deployed where we wanted them, and they were. And we got an MRI scan. And again, you see the coils are in the varics and not in the sinus leading back from it. And then we opened it up to demonstrate again that the embolization was exactly on target. So armed with this, We have set up a clinical trial now, and the goals are first and foremost to assess the safety of intervention in fetal life and the efficacy of intervention in fetal life. And the efficacy is defined by the ability to not have the newborn babies manifest the cardiac heart failure, the overwhelming heart failure at birth. That will be a success. If they continue to need urgent neonatal embolization, that is a treatment failure. Um, There are very rigid safety criteria, both for maternal safety and fetal safety, Um, and there are lots of exclusion criteria that are actually borrowed uh, from the fetal cardiac experience that we've had. So um, lots of uh, maternal potential um, exclusion factors like coagulopathies, placental issues, things like that. And again, we are targeting the fetuses that are in the NAR cohort. So if there's already extensive fetal brain parenchymal injury, they are not appropriate um, subjects for the the trial. If there's already irreversible non-brain organ injury, they're not appropriate subjects for the trial. Again, if if the width of that sinus is too narrow, meaning that that fetus is likely to do very well after birth and be able to be in the elective cohort, they are not appropriate Subjects for the trial, so we're really looking for that NAR cohort, the newborns who are going to um, who are going to present severely, and uh, we have IRB approval at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital and Children's Hospital. This is a multidisciplinary and two hospital undertaking. We have FDA approval uh, of the IDE that was needed to use the coils, and the fetuses. We're actively recruiting. This is a rare condition, so we are very much looking for referrals from uh, any. Physician who sees an appropriate patient who might be interested. Um, this is the study team, and this is the um, the contact information.
0: Uh, well, Dr. Darren Orbach, uh, the chief of pediatric neurointerventional radiology at uh, Boston Children's Hospital. Um, that was a terrific overview of where the state of the art is right now, and I suspect that one of the questions that's on everyone's mind is, in order to advanced care, because as you've described, there's a cohort of infants who are at birth suffering the consequences of this high output failure syndrome. And so in order to move the field, you've got to intervene on them sooner. But of course, you need to have your first patient. And uh, parents have to uh, agree to what is easily a very high risk procedure. Um, I know you've discussed this with your community. Can you describe a little bit about um, how you gained consensus for this protocol um, and where maybe gaps in the consensus are uh, uh, for the protocol?
1: Well, I would say that as for many conditions that I treat where they're almost all fairly rare conditions for which you just don't have large scale studies that inform the natural history or the treatment outcomes even. And so it's sometimes decision-making is extremely difficult in the field of pediatric cerebrovascular disease. And it really requires absolutely open and honest communication with the parents with a lot of time spent talking about what we don't know. And I'm often telling parents exhaustively um, you know the background of the condition, my understanding of the physiology, my recommended approach to treatment. But I always stress to them that at the end, it really is their choice and it sometimes comes down to their values and their risk tolerance and things like that. that that's beyond vein of Galen malformation. Sometimes we have this discussion around, should we treat a brain AVM? Should we not treat a brain AVM? Should we take a risk on closing a vessel that's feeding an AV fistula? Should we not? Should we do open surgical treatment or endovascular treatment or some combination of both? There really are not crisp, well-defined answers to those questions. And it's quite common that our families come to us having heard multiple different opinions that contradict each other and that end up being different than the recommendation that we offer. And I have found that the best uh, approach to that is to be completely open and transparent. I'm very quick to tell parents what I don't know and that I'm comfortable with that, but that what I'm recommending is what I would recommend for any any child's best interest, whether it would be my child or any other child, based on my understanding of the condition and what we can offer. So to come back to vein of Galen malformation, because we treat a lot of this, and, you know, I, I, I tend, I've done 40 or 50 embolizations a year in the past few years for vein of Galen malformation. So we we see the full spectrum of severity. Um, I feel that because we can identify the cohort in utero, I'm very comfortable discussing a high-risk intervention with that particular cohort because I have seen the tough outcomes that can happen when the state-of-the-art intervention is not successful. And, and it's an agonizing experience for everyone involved when it doesn't work. If we were not able to separate out the newborns who will do well, then I don't think that it would be appropriate to do this kind of study. And you would sort of have to accept you know, fate until we had some lower risk intervention. My hope is that the intervention um, as I said, will transform the kids from the NAR cohort to the IT cohort. And the study is set up so that after the intervention, we're still offering the same state-of-the-art treatment. So the babies will still be admitted to the NICU at birth. We will still place that umbilical artery line. We will still absolutely intervene in the neonates if needed. Um, the difference is the fetal intervention and trying to avoid that. So um, there is definitely a jump into the unknown that will be appropriate for some families and not appropriate for others. But I know we're also in touch with the parent community, and there's a lot of interest in seeing if we can push the field forward, because the parent community itself is very much aware of the potentially catastrophic outcomes that that can be
0: had here. And uh, of course, this is not traditional sample size, as you outlined. This is a rare condition. But as the protocol is set up, how many patients will you need to treat in order to uh, establish, uh, or not establish, but at least suggest uh, that this is a successful treatment approach?
1: Yeah, so because the fetal MRI is so good at picking out the newborns who will present with a severe um, presentation, it turns out that you don't need a very large cohort. So if you do the statistical power analysis, a cohort of 20 patients will be enough to establish um, that we have successfully taken them from the NAR cohort into the IT cohort. So we've set up criteria for uh, establishing confidently in a cohort of 20 patients that either we have the desired efficacy or we don't because the outcomes are so uh, predictable based on the fetal MRI scan. Um, there are lots. There are many interesting secondary questions as well. For example, is it possible that fetal intervention can have other positive effects on the outcome, such as neurologic development, uh, learning issues, uh, things like that, that really are not part of the primary or uh, outcome that we're measuring, but we are actually going to follow those as well. So we have pediatric neurologists who will be doing neurologic checks on the babies through age two years. Because there are other secondary outcomes that may be helpful as well, avoidance of seizures, which we know happen in uh, in kids with vein of Galen malformation, but the dramatic difference in outcome is so predictable based on the fetal MRI scan that to power the study, you actually don't need a very large cohort.
0: And finally, um, you know, the term equipoise, as you know, uh, can be debated as to what ac- actually equipoise is. But is there, are there any communities, th- uh, professional? colleagues, uh, not just individuals, but but communities who've said to you, well, we're, we're not at equipoise, that the, that the current paradigm has to be accepted as the only reasonable paradigm right now, and that we shouldn't undertake this approach?
1: Uh, I have not had explicitly that, that kind of pushback. I, I do think that this is Far out of the beaten track, far off the beaten track for the neurointerventional world. So when people first hear about the idea and they see our in our neurointerventional literature that touts great outcomes, they're, you know you can be taken aback a little bit. But when you stop and look at and look at the numbers that are out there from the OB perspective, and you look at the outcomes of this particular cohort that's being targeted. Um, I've not had that particular feedback. There's a tremendous interest in, in how this is going to go, and there are other conditions that one might contemplate fetal intervention, for which one might contemplate fetal intervention, if this turns out to be safe and effective. And there's a whole range potentially of delivery of genetic vectors and all kinds of other things you could do if you can access the intracranial vasculature in utero. That's all secondary, super interesting. Um, but the fundamental question of whether you can access um, the brain safely or not, you know, remains to be determined. Uh,
0: Dr. Darren Orbach, chief of pediatric neurointerventional radiology at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, thank you so much for uh, being with us today and sharing with us the state of the art on uh, the vein of Galen malformation treatment as it exists today and equally so thank you for sharing with us your your protocol to see if you can advance the field and on behalf of uh, i think your pediatric colleagues around the world we salute uh, pediatric neurointerventionists who uh, for the amazing work courageous work that you do every day so thank you for being here today thanks so much it was it was really a pleasure to have this opportunity to talk to you This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. Check out the description box to view the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast. To hear more podcasts like this one, log on to openpediatrics.org.